Let's pray. Holy God, word made flesh, let us come to this word open to being surprised. Silence our agendas, banish our assumptions, cast out our casual detachment, confound our expectations, clear the cobwebs from our ears, penetrate the corners of our hearts with this word. We know that you can, we pray that you will, and we wait with great anticipation. Amen. Today's New Testament scripture can be found in your pew Bibles on page 1078. There you will find the second letter of Paul to the Thessalonians. I'll be reading from the second chapter, verses 1 through 5, and then I'll move to verses 13 through 17. As to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we beg you, brothers and sisters, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by spirit or by word or by letter, as though from us to affect that the day of the Lord is already here. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the lawless one is revealed, the one destined for destruction. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God and object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, declaring himself to be God. Do you not remember that I told you these things when I was still with you? But we must always give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and through belief in the truth. For this purpose, he called you through your proclamation of the good news so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and through grace gave us eternal comfort and good hope, comfort your hearts and strengthen them in every good work and word. The word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. So our um, Old Testament lesson this morning comes again from the Psalms. This is Psalm 98. So listen now for the word of the Lord to the church. O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have gotten him victory. The Lord has made known his victory. He has revealed his vindication in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel All the ends of the earth have seen the victory of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song 
and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who live in it. Let the floods clap their hands, let the hills sing together for joy at the presence of the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the psalmists often sing about the mighty power of God and the power of God to create, the power of God to liberate, the power of God to heal, the power of God to save. And we're still singing these kinds of songs, although sometimes we sing them to the words of more modern psalmists like Isaac Watts, who in the 18th century led us to sing the mighty power of God that made the mountains rise, that spread the flowing seas abroad and built the lofty skies. I sing the wisdom that ordained the sun to rule the day. The moon shines full at his command, and all the stars obey. While all that borrows life from thee is ever in thy care, and everywhere that we can be, thou God art present there. This idea that God has dominion and power over the world is primary and foundational to faith, and we hear it clearly in the words of this 98th Psalm. Its poetry praises the marvelous things wrought by the right hand and the holy arm of God. Divine power is felt in vindication and in victory through force that moves mountains to sing and demands the respect of all nations on earth. In a way, I think the entire Bible can be understood as the story of how we as human beings have been shaped and engaged by this dominion and power of God. God's creative power shaped us from dust and breathed life into us. God's liberating power carried us out of bondage in Egypt, through the wilderness, and into a promised land of milk and honey. God's guiding hand gave us the law and the prophets. The dominion of God's love gave us a savior. And God's abiding power feeds and sustains the witness of the church. Miraculously, we can even say that we as humans share in this power of God. In Genesis, God makes humankind in God's image and gives us dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. In Genesis, we're also told to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and to subdue it. In Matthew's gospel, as I talked to the children about, the apostle Peter is given the keys of the kingdom of heaven, saying that whatever Peter bound on earth would be bound in heaven, whatever Peter loosed on earth would be loosed in heaven. And as he ascends to that heaven, Jesus instructs the disciples to wait in Jerusalem, quote, until you have been clothed with power from on high. 
When that power from on high descends at Pentecost, the church is given its life and its mission. And then through the grace and providence of God, we in the church ever since have been given a share in God's dominion and power over the earth. That phenomenon is what I want to focus on today as we think about the nature of God's dominion and God's power, what can we say about the church's power? As we think about the power of Christ, how does that knowledge shape our own understandings and uses of power in Christ's church? Our Presbyterian tradition actually has a lot to say about these questions. It will probably not surprise you very much to know that what we have to say has to do a lot with how we as humans limited by sin can really mess it up. It is true that power is built into our system. Elders and deacons are elected by majority vote. Pastors are elected by majority vote. And the decisions that the session makes about mission and ministry are determined by majority vote. One definition of power is simply the capacity to impose one's will. And admittedly, that does happen in the governing bodies of the church. Hopefully it's not our will, but some will is imposed. And we have made the the decision, the choice, to follow majority rule in those contexts, not because we believe that might makes right, but rather because we see it as a means of discernment. We simply believe that if the consciences of a larger number of individuals believe that a certain path is more consistent with the will of God, then we follow that path simply because we are more likely to be aligning ourselves with the will of God. At the same time, we also freely acknowledge that when human beings wield power in the church, A little bit of sin can creep in. In fact, we know that sin will creep in. Humans err and humans make mistakes, and that means that we will err and we will make mistakes in the ways that we use church power. There are some other definitions of power that may be illuminating but are a little problematic. One such definition would say that power is, quote, the ability of a person or group to determine the action of others without regard to their needs or desires. Such coercive or self-interested power, a type of power that's concerned with getting its own way, which takes no heed of the needs and desires of others, is clearly at odds with the witness of Scripture and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is why our book of order in the section of our constitutional documents that talks about foundational values that we've always professed as Presbyterians, we state there as a matter of principle that because the only power in the church comes from God through Christ, that means that authentic expressions of such power always have two primary characteristics. We say that authentic church power is always one, ministerial, and two, declarative. So to say that church power is ministerial is to say that church power follows the commands of a superior. It ministers to a great, greater power. And in the case of the church, that power, that superior power, 
is Christ. Always Christ. Because our power is derivative of Christ, church power always recognizes that it is a gift from Christ, not a right. We exercise church power as ministers of God's will, subservient to God's will, not to our own. When we say that church power is declarative, we are saying that church power is about declaring something important, something enduring. Power makes something clear. Power makes a pronouncement or declaration about values. And again, that proclamation is about Christ. Always Christ. So to say that power in the church is declarative is to say that every exercise of power is itself a witness to Jesus Christ. So putting those things together, when we say that church power is ministerial and declarative, we conclude that church power is about servanthood and it is about witness. It is not a method to impose our will on others. It's not a way of subjecting others to human authority. In German, during the Reformation era, our predecessors in the faith said it this way in the Second Helvetic Confession. From the very beginning of the church, those ancient, not ancient, those prior Christians said, quote, no man lifted up himself above another. None usurped greater power or authority over his fellow bishops. For remembering the words of the Lord, let the leader among you become as one who serves. They kept themselves in humility, and by mutual services they helped one another in the governing and preserving of the church. Which brings us back to the wisdom of this psalm which sings across the ages about the ways that God governs and preserves the whole world. God clearly has power and dominion over the world, but this power of God exercises its power in all of the ways that I have just been describing. God draws all aspects of creation into mutuality and shared praise. No parts are diminished or subjugated. And let's face it, no one would really have blinked an eye if God had ignored or dismissed some of those parts. Rocks and hills are inanimate. Water ebbs and flows, but it has no will of its own. You could say this is just setting, this is just window dressing, this is just the stage for something more important. And yet even these elements are given a voice in the kingdom of God. Even they are welcomed into the chorus of worship. If there was a hierarchy, we do not see it in this psalm. All we see and hear is the joy and participation of all aspects of creation. Making joyful noises with whatever God gave them to make joyful noises with in whatever ways that are authentic and natural to them. So human beings praise, sing praises and they sing joyful songs. They blow trumpets. They strum lyres. And waters and floods clap their hands together. And the hills join together in song of their own. Perhaps through the songs of birds. Or the whirl of dancing winds across the peaks. 
In other psalms like 19, the heavens tell the glory of God. The firmament proclaims God's handiwork. They do not use words, the psalm says. Their voice is not heard, yet their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. And in Psalm 96, fields exult. Trees of the forest sing for joy. When God is in control, it does not feel like dominion is something imposed by force to keep everything accountable and in its place. In God's hands, power lifts, power liberates, power creates room for celebration. Contrast this with some of the perspectives on power that have captured our human imaginations over the centuries. Niccolo Machiavelli, for example, famously determined that since love and fear can hardly exist together, if we must choose between them, it is far safer to be feared than to be loved. He believed that the only real concern of a political ruler is the acquisition and maintenance of power And he saw fear and subjugation as a very real tool, a very real means toward that end. The feeling of Psalm 98, however, is the opposite of fear. If anyone has the right to impose one's will upon another, it is God. And yet God, again and again, chooses to wield power not as a fearful dictator, but rather in the pattern of Jesus that is described in the second chapter of Philippians, where we read that Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard that kind of power as something to be exploited, but instead emptied himself of that power, taking the form of a servant, humbling himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death, on a cross. This godly pattern of leadership leads us into one of the greatest blessings that God has offered to the followers of Christ and to the church of Jesus Christ. It is the gift of, and this is a Greek word, koinonia. In the early church and in the letters of Paul, koinonia describes the ethos and feeling of being the true church. It is marked by sharing fellowship, partnership, and joyful communion in the Spirit. It is the opposite of fear and coercion. In Koinonia, we celebrate God and one another. In Koinonia, the place and value of everyone is affirmed. In Koinonia, praise is shared in common voice. In Koinonia, wrapped in the embrace of God's power and dominion, Life in the church takes on the spirit of Psalm 98 as we sing a new song of righteousness, equity, and joy. One of my greatest mentors in the world of preaching, John Redhead, once made an amazing observation about how we as God's people can envision this kind of power in our own lives and in the church. Quoting a book by J.A. Hadfield called The Psychology of Power, Redhead said that we can think of ourselves either as a reservoir or as a channel. When you see yourselves as a reservoir, Redhead wrote, then you see yourself as containing just so much strength and no more. 
You can think of yourself as getting your energy from the food you eat and the air you breathe, and it is strictly limited in amount. When you work hard, your energy runs low. So your tendency is to save yourself as much power as possible, lest the reservoir to empty out. So Redhead didn't say this, but I think that Machiavelli, if he heard that, would put this idea of the reservoir on the fear side of the spectrum. When we approach power as a reservoir, we are assuming that the quest for power is a zero-sum game. If you have it, that means I don't have it. If you get to decide, that means I don't get to decide. So we end up trying to pull as much power as we can into our little personal reservoirs, hoping to preserve ourselves from pain and claim ourselves some gain. The alternative is to see ourselves as a channel. Ralph Waldo Emerson once said that the power of the Gulf Stream will flow through an ordinary drinking straw if the straw is placed parallel to the flow of the stream. If we want God to help us, if we want to use whatever power God is sharing with us and willing to give to us and use it in humility, in servanthood, in witness to Jesus Christ, if we want to feel the blessings of koinonia, And to offer a worship that's so powerful that it feels like the trees and the tides are joining us in our song, then we simply need to align ourselves with the will of God and let God's power flow through us like the Gulf Stream flowing through a channel. God takes the initiative and offers God's power for personal living today, Redhead preached, but it is available only when we get in step with God's will and commit ourselves to what that requires. In the early part of the 20th century, as the economy in the Northeast was booming, a big project was started to build a new railroad bridge over a tidal river in New York State. And progress hit a snag when the team found a sunken ship in the riverbed right where a key piling needed to be sunk. Divers went down and they wrapped chains around the hull of the wreck, and then the engineers brought them up and they fastened them to the back of tugboats, intent on yanking that wreck out by force. The tugboats puffed and they pulled and they puffed and they pulled for a better part of a day, but nothing at all happened. And a young engineering student who had been watching from a distance walked up to the chief engineer and asked if he might have a try. The chief engineer scoffed at this young upstart. He was obviously just out of school. What could he know? And what would you do, he snorted. I'd like to try the flatboats we use to bring the granite from Vermont, the young man answered. Laughing amongst themselves, that crew told him, Go for it. Do your best work. So the young man instructed the chains to be removed from the back of the tugboats and then wrapped around the floating wooden rafts. What now, the old engineer sneered. We wait, the young man said. And over the next few hours, the team waited and they watched as the tide slowly came in 
And the raft slowly lifted with that tide. And they watched as the sunken vessel was slowly and steadily pulled from the muck and the mire, breaking free of the muddy river bottom. The Psalms speak of this power that wells up from creation. It is the power of victory. It is the power of vindication, the power of righteousness and equity and joy, the power that God continues to pump into creation and into the church. We are not called to create this power ourselves, but rather to align ourselves with the character and will and power of God and to allow God's power to flow through us and work through us. To God be the glory. To God be all dominion and power. And may God give us the wisdom to get out of God's way and let God work through us to let the mighty power and dominion of God flow through us like water flows through a channel on its way to the sea. And to allow us to join in the koinonia of God's creation that we find in Psalm 98. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.